This is episode number 174 with Ben Ratray of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Go, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan and I'm the CEO and publisher of Founder Magazine and also the host of the Founder Podcast. And I'm coming to you live from hometown, homegrown Melbourne, Australia. And if you're new to this show, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation and we really just try to find out how they've done it and really just draw from their lessons and experiences. And, you know, you may have heard of the founder, you may not have, but you will have heard of the company. If you haven't heard of the company, you may know the founder or the brand. So let's talk about what's been happening in my world. Um, I just come back from a massive holiday and wow, uh, it was really life-changing. Uh, it was actually the first holiday I've taken non-business since I've started Founder. And it was just so incredibly refreshing, eye-opening because I was so deep within the business. I was able to take a little bit of a step out of things and just really see what was going on and making some really powerful changes to help us grow even faster, which is really, really exciting. So You know, uh, a big lesson for me there is now I'm going to have like a nice one week, no work, nothing, holiday every six months, just so I can recap. And just like how you would treat a racehorse, you you know, you know, you don't get that racehorse racing every single week. It has to spend some time in the paddock. So I'm going to have some time in the paddock every six months. Now, today's guest His name is Ben Ratray, and he's the founder of Change.org, an absolutely incredible business, incredible organization, and he shares so much around scale, growth, starting a social enterprise, what that means, how he's raised capital from so many iconic investors around the world, how he's built this massive movement around petitions. I didn't really know that much about Change.org until we started interviewing and I started to prepare for this interview, but 
wow, you guys have got to go and check change.org out. You've got to go and, you know, get behind some of the causes there. It's just simply world-changing what Ben's building, and you really get to understand really what it takes to be a true visionary. So that's it from me, guys. Before I jump into the show, I just want to say, if you are enjoying these episodes, please do take the time to leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you are listening. Uh, It helps us more than you can imagine. And I know you must have other friends that are founders or entrepreneurs or business owners. Please do share this podcast with them because I know that if you're loving it, your friends will too. All right, that's it from me, guys. Now let's jump to the show. The first question that I ask everyone is, how did you get your job? Uh, I got my job primarily because of starting the company. Did not apply for the job, but uh, was the first person to found Change.org. And uh, it's not clear whether they'd give me the job now, but uh, earned it by virtue of building the organization. Yeah, fantastic. And was that your first business, first initiative? Uh, I had been, when I was at Stanford, started a couple enterprises. I was there during the early stage of the first internet boom, 98 to 2002. So it worked in a couple startups at that point uh, and then you know saw everything implode. Uh, and it wasn't until a few years afterward that I then started Change.org. Gotcha. And, and how did that come about? Like, like how, how did you end up starting Change.org? So, it's, so I originally wanted to be an investment banker. Um, which couldn't be further from what I now do. But um, when I went to college, actually, I my, my senior year, I had still sort of planned on going through the the trajectory of the, the finance path. And one of my younger brothers, when I, I came back home for uh, for a break, came out as, as gay. It was a totally unexpected experience and a really transformative thing for me. He told me the thing that was you know, most painful for him was not seeing people that were anti-gay, but rather good people refused to stand up and to speak out against them. People like me, you know, calls me out as his own brother. And it was a, it was a powerful and painful, frankly, experience. And uh, I just you know, went through a, a lot of deep contemplation in the ensuing weeks, and I just couldn't go back to kind of the same, the path that I had previously outlined, frankly, for most of my life, wanting to, to go into finance and investment banking. And um, took about a year of further work and deliberation and reading and uh, an experience in London that then turned me back into politics. And uh, I came back to, to Washington, D.C., uh, learned a lot about power and politics, what was wrong with the political system in the United States, and, uh, and actually uh, I logged into the Facebook.com, which is still called the Facebook.com in 2005, and just immediately saw the, the ability of you know everyday people to to come together, run friends and photos using technology, and, and just it, it was quite clear that they could do the same thing around causes and, and issues in politics and build the platform, you know, in the, the next couple of years after that. Yeah, wow. So um, how do you acquire the domain change.org? That's a strong domain starting out. This is an <laughs> this is an epic story that I literally I don't think I've ever told this story. I don't think anyone's asked me publicly about this. I we were about to launch for a few months before, this is in 2006, and uh, I think people radically undervalue uh, the importance of their name, of the domain, of the, the sort of iconic name of their company. And so I spent a couple of weeks thinking through all the different incarnations of what we might be called. 
uh, and it seems obvious in retrospect, but but change.org at the time, I was like, well, this actually sounds brilliant. It took me about a week to think about it. Of uh, Literally, I probably spent 50 hours that week thinking of names. And, uh, and the domain that wasn't available, but the site wasn't currently actively live. It wasn't being used. And so, that, of course, I go on a sort of hunt to find out who owns the domain. And uh, I then go through a process of, for three months, aggressively pursuing the person who owns the domain. I sent him pitch emails. I got on the phone with him. I flew down to LA. He missed the first meeting. I flew down again. I told him I was going to be in town without having set up the meeting, hoping we could meet in person. I literally ended up having to record a flash video of the website that I built with the name change.org without even owning the domain and sending him a link to watch that flash video of a website with a domain that he owned, but I designed to convince him to do a deal. And we didn't ink the deal until the day we went basically live or a private beta. Yeah. Wow. And the deal went live. Yeah, so we we literally got the domain about 24 hours before we told uh, a lot of other people. So what I had done is I had bought the domain Hange, so H-A-N-G-E dot org. So it was going to be C dot Hange dot org. Like that was the backup. Um, but I was just adamant about it and confident that we'd be able to get this. So I literally had I went around to pitch about. Th- about 50 of the biggest nonprofits in the United States, all in about three weeks period of time um, with a website designed to look like change.org, even though I only had hange.org available at the time. That was like the the early alpha site. And uh, and had he not agreed to the deal, uh, we would have ended up having to go with c.hange.org, which is not ideal. Um, but I just had this audacious confidence that we'd be able to do it. And by getting you know, dozens of the biggest NGOs in the world to sign on as beta partners, designing what I thought to be a beautiful site in a professional way and sending him a link, showing him all that I'd done, all that I'd accomplished, all that I'd prepared without him even yet agreeing to sell the domain at all for any price. I think that was probably something that convinced him that I had the tenacity and determination needed to potentially make it successful. Yeah, wow. That's a cool story. Yeah, I, I agree with you on the power of, of of having a strong domain. We recently acquired founder like with our spelling, without the E.com. Yep. And that was a long journey as well. Um, but it, I, think, I think it'll be worth it. <laughs> I mean, it's totally. I mean, I I would say for any any you know, anybody thinking in the kind of even in the app ecosystem, you know, web domains still matter. Uh, they don't matter maybe as much, but they're still consequential. And I think the people are too haphazard with the selection of uh, the ultimate domain. I would just say it is it is one of the most important marketing pieces and branding pieces you will ever develop, if not the single most important one, uh, and is worthy of not just deep deliberation about the you know, range of options you might consider, but aggressive pursuit of the domain. I mean, there, you know, like anything in, you know, in, in, so in, in enterprises, there are many more things you can accomplish than you imagine. There's a website, the number of friends that I have that have through an, an intense, aggressive, determined, dogged efforts, gotten domains that you never would have expected for much less or for 
cash and equity. In our case, it was a significant amount of equity in addition to an investment the person made in the company, actually. Wow. Uh, that's what we did to make it work. So I would, I would encourage people strongly to be as creative uh, as possible. Mm, yeah, I agree. And you don't always have to get it straight away either, right? Totally. I mean, it's the kind of thing that's important enough that, you know, a lot of people selling domains, you know, they, they will be, especially if you want to be giving equity as a part of it, if you don't have the full cash available, uh, is the more successful you are. In some cases, the, the more more opportunity you have to bring them in as a partner um, and as a, as a part owner of, of the company. So uh, I think that the ultimately making sure you have a strong name that has the potential to get a, a great domain is more important in some cases than getting it immediately. Mm, yeah, I see. I mean, Box, Box was Box.net before they got Box.com. Um, and uh, it's a number of stories like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, tell me, how, how did you how did you launch? Like, did you raise capital beforehand, before you launched, launched Change.org? Because you guys are for profit, which some people might yeah. find surprising. Yeah, we're a social enterprise. We're, we're a B Corp. Uh, so, you know, a for-profit company dedicated to social good. So this is one of the one of the big mistakes that we made was receiving an offer of investment previous to launching the company, declining that because we thought the terms were not ideal, um, and then realizing directly subsequent to launch that things would be much more difficult than we expected. Um, you know, I oftentimes say, as, as, as a number of our investors have told me as well, always raise money before and not after you launch, if you can, um, at least before you launch in a very big public way, um, because the story that you're able to tell as an entrepreneur is almost always more compelling than the data you can provide about traction immediately subsequent to launch. And that's what we faced. We turned down, a, again, I don't think I've mentioned this maybe publicly, but I, without calling out the name of the person, we turned out an offer of a million and a half investment uh, on terms that I still think weren't, weren't great, but had only had friends and family money directly before launching. You know, we thought, of course, that we'd go viral immediately and have huge traction. And the reality is, getting millions of people to come to a website is enormously difficult. And uh, and so after having launched, we realized this, went back to try to make that deal work. Um, so another long story around that. It ended up not working. Um, and then it really was friends and family and just early angel investors for several years that sustained the organization before we raised a real proper round of investment. Mm. So I'm sure um, people will find this interesting. I'm curious too. Can you tell us more about your business model? Because we do have, um, have a lot of people that do want to do social enterprise and and you know produce for profits that that are that are effectively um, you know making the world a better place. Yeah, so I think that I mean, the best business model for any social enterprise is one in which there's an, an inextricable link between the the product or service you're offering and the revenue generation. And so for us, we said, well, look, you know, we didn't want to have a traditional ad-based business, um, but there was a niche opportunity to really build a, a, a sizable business on uh, on paid ads from nonprofits and political campaigns and social good businesses. So specifically, you know, we would build a large audience as we have of, of you know, uh, more than 185 million people that were engaged in issues and then connect those people to some of the biggest NGOs, World Wildlife Fund or the Nature Conservancy in the U.S. or um, Save the Children and to get paid by those organizations by helping them build their donor bases and their membership lists. Uh, and that is what we actually launched with. We scaled. We generated more than $100 million in revenue 
on that over over the period of you know just the past well five years, but it was also ultimately not something that we could scale beyond the the the, the path that we thought was needed to really be successful as a business. What we found uh, was that Facebook in particular and sort of Google and Facebook in general, you know, scaled their ad platforms so successfully over the past few years with ad targeting, hyper analytics, the capacity for real time sort of fulfillment. That, that the ad business is just a very difficult business to make successful, and, and in particular in the social good space. And so we actually started testing two other revenue products over the past year, uh, one crowdfunding, which is fairly straightforward and seems obvious, and the second is, is paid membership, basically people becoming subscribers, paying members to change.org in the way you might become a paying member to a, a magazine or a newspaper or, or whatnot. And, and that's actually gone quite well. We've now tens, tens of thousands of people that are paying um, every month to be premium members of change.org and get exclusive access to content and updates about their impact. And and we're really building that out. So I, I think that one of the most exciting new opportunities that is ever expanding right now, and that really needs to be tapped by media properties and, um, and any, any platform that has sizable traction is subscription is, is recurring revenue through having your own users pay you money because you offer an awesome service. Um, and that's what we're scaling right now. Yeah, wow, that's that's really, really interesting because that's that's a path we're going down as well. We're just premium content. We, we're doing it right now, but refining, refining, refining. So, so what are you guys finding that is that is working? Like, how, how what what is the best way to to convert? Uh, what's the sales process there? Yeah, so the most important thing we find is having a clear conversion event. Uh, so, one of the challenges for traditional media properties is that. You know, if you get your your traffic from you know SEO or from just regular social traffic, uh, and people are coming in and reading a single article or you know second article, uh, or looking at a single petition and not really engaging, it's it's hard to have a natural ask, right, an upsell that that really convinces people um, to to become a subscriber. And so the path that we've seen most successful is you have people take action, some form of activity on the site that is lightweight. Um, in our case, the most obvious is signing petitions. Um, it could be liking the page, but some sort of lightweight action that is short of what is a pretty high bar of asking people to become a paying member. And then subsequent to that, starting to market to them, um, and even sometimes then doing a, a one-off ask of, instead of becoming a monthly member right away, we ask you, hey, will you chip in to be part of this crowdfunding campaign? Uh, you can chip in 10 bucks and support this campaign and it, it promotes it to more members or you know, it helps buy a billboard for an advertisement for this campaign. Um, and then once they've done that, we then oftentimes will upsell people. So say, hey, you've chipped in to this one campaign, it's been five or $10, do you wanna become a monthly supporter, a monthly member uh, of other campaigns like this? And what we found is the conversion uh, is so much higher with that first lower bar action that it is ult- the ultimate success rate is, is, is better if we ask them for the low bar ask first and then follow up with a, a higher bar monthly subscription ask. Mm, yeah, that's really, really smart. So can you tell me more about like some notable petitions, uh, like, like how many people, like what's the, what's the largest that you've like uh, caused awareness for? It was a, it was a, a petition actually in the, in the U.S. right after the, uh, the election of Donald Trump, uh, around 5 million people uh, that joined calling on sort of looking back at what, what the Americans call the electoral college, the sort of fairly unique or unusual system 
that we have where you know the, the determining factor for who becomes president in the United States is not who receives the popular vote, just the you know highest percentage, but who receives votes on a state by state basis. Um, so that was a hugely viral campaign, you know, literally right after the US election. I think about the, the 24 hours after the election or the 48 hours after the election, about 20% of US voters uh, visited that that petition and, and many of them signed. And the other one that was international that was fairly recent and ended up be, being quite successful was there's a, a quite tragic uh, dog meat festival in in China. And uh, if you know anything about virality on the internet, you will know that the people passionate about animal rights and animal issues are some of the most sort of active on social media. And you know, 4 million people joined this petition to call on the Chinese government to intervene to implement more um, sort of humane practices. And it actually had a real impact and it, it changed the policy in this local community. There's no longer this uh, uh, sort of selling of as much sort of dog meat still a work in progress, still a lot of things to be done. But um, but anyway, we, I think the, the most notable thing about the site, besides some of these you know, multi-million person petitions, is just the, the number of total campaigns. So about 25,000 petitions launch every month on the site. Um, and so what's most notable is not just the big outlier campaigns, but there's just you know, every year hundreds of thousands that are getting you know, thousands of, of, of signatures, sometimes in small local communities around saving local parks or you know, better access to school for kids, things that are really impact people's lives in their communities, but you would never know at a kind of a national or global scale. Yeah, that's really cool. I I, I applaud you for like, you know, what, what you're doing with Change. Oh, it's really amazing, man. And I'm curious, when it comes to these petitions, because I, I'm... I'm please please excuse my ignorance. Like I, I don't I don't really sign petitions or, or anything like that. But when it comes to these petitions, how many how many do you need to, to sign to make a real like uh, to to enforce anything or or, ma- or change it? Uh, the what's interesting is, you know, the, the common critique of petitions and the critique that I frankly had when I started the company. Um, because we didn't start with petitions, uh, was that these these don't matter? There's it's clicktivism, it's trivial. It's you know, is it of real consequence? Do people pay attention? Um, and so I was personally skeptical. We started out building a social network for social change, uh, and what we found was the oldest tool in politics, the the simple petition. Um, if you have a very clear objective, uh, not I want to stop global warming, but I want to get a tax on plastic bags in my town. You know, not I want to sort of end hunger in my country, but I want to um, allow for food stamps and uh, free access to, to food for the homeless in uh, my neighborhood. I mean, those are the kind of campaigns that can be immensely impactful. So we see on a regular basis, you know, more than a dozen campaigns a day will win on the site. So literally it will change a, a national law, a state or local law, or get a company to change a policy more than a dozen times a day. And so it happens all the time. So a lot of people that their first petition they sign, it will be something that within a week, they'll find out that their mayor or city council member or CEO of a company has changed the policy because of them and the 500, 5,000 or 5 million people that have joined that campaign. Yeah. Wow. That is so cool. How does that feel to be able to, to, to create a website that can make that kind of change? I mean, it's been a beautiful experience. I mean, I, you know, 
what's what's been striking to me in the early days when we didn't have much impact, the first few victories were quite striking and frankly pretty emotional. I mean, there's some really really compelling of the first campaign that won. Uh, was around uh, this woman in South Africa who had been raped because she's a lesbian woman and the man was trying to turn her straight. I'm not kidding. It's wow, this awful practice called, yeah, called corrective rape and it happened in Cape Town. It's a petition that goes viral. It, it becomes a huge international story. It embarrasses the government, leads to a massive protest and and gets the government of South Africa to to implement a new law against corrective rape, make it punishable by by far greater number of years, uh, and, and the penalty ended up changing the, a lot of behavior. Um, and that kind of victory is just immensely emotional and, and, and hugely meaningful. Um, I think now things happen at such a rate, such a pace that I'm actually fairly disconnected on a day-to-day -day basis of all the victories that are happening. But I think that, that mostly where we're at now is, is just so in awe of our own users. You know, it's not us at this point. I mean, we, I think we have an obligation, not just an opportunity, but an obligation to continue to build out a platform that best serves the public in enabling them to mobilize for the change they care about. But we just see remarkable people who look like everyday citizens, but are doing extraordinary things, ending acid attacks in India, um, sort of uh, addressing uh, you know, Down syndrome in the United States, I mean, really big campaigns that are winning. Um, and so it's less about us and what we've built, it's more about just being inspired by our own users. Mm, yeah, I agree. Um, you know, it's so amazing and so, so, so like awesome what you're building. So I'm really curious, you mentioned um, offline that uh, uh, some of your investors have been, you know, uh, featured on Founder on the covers of our magazine or on a podcast, et cetera, et cetera. Because, because you guys are a B Corp for profit, you have raised capital, does that mean that like you guys have an intention to sell the company at one point in time? I'm just a little curious around that. Like, yeah. How, how does that we have, work? We have, an unusual, we have an unusual goal and orientation around this. So our goal is to remain private, profitable, and independent as an institution uh, over time. I think that, you know, one of the things that, that I think has been striking, especially in Silicon Valley, to see, to witness uh, both people I know personally or just people in the broader startup ecosystem, is there is this natural inclination to want to build a company that goes public and then this remarkable surprise that people have about the perverse incentives you face as a public institution. I mean, it's sort of the, the, the incentives to focus on quarterly returns, uh, the obsession with stock price on a daily basis. It's not just that it is problematic for the mission of a company, which I think it is. It is also problematic for long-term thinking and really building something that, that lasts. Uh, and certainly, a number of companies have been able to uh, avoid this. I and mean, Amazon is a great example, Google and Facebook as well. But it is difficult for companies, unless you're extraordinary in your performance, to be public companies and think about the long-term. And so because we are mission-focused and because our goal is to build infrastructure for better civic participation, democracy, accountability, and business uh, over the, the real you know, next few decades, uh, we think the best structure of the of change.org is to become um, just a, an independent, indefinite company. Um, I mean, we're pragmatic about things. We, we think that if it were the case that, for example, the public markets transformed and all of a sudden there was many benefit corporations, B Corps, going public and long-term investors that were mission-aligned, you know, I think, you know, we don't want to we're not ideological about it, 
but right now, the way I think the financial markets are structured is that the best long-term orientation for, for us is to be an independent company. Mm, yeah. Okay. So um, you guys are pro- – do you mind sharing if you guys are profitable right now? So we're not profitable right now. Um, I think we have a, a pretty clear path of profitability, but it's been a work in progress. I mean this is – you know the transition from an ad-based model uh, to a subscription user user contributions model, where our users are funding the platform, um, that is both immensely promising and something we're hugely excited about, and was a painful transition to make. Anytime you're mid-flight with a sizable organization that is already scaled with lots of users, and transition your business line, that is not an easy thing. So we have, you know, I think we have uh, a number of things to prove to ourselves and. And that over the next year, year and a half is something that I'm quite excited to be able to do and scaling our revenue and getting the company to sustainability. Um, so we're not reliant upon investors. And that's that's the path. Mm, yeah. And I like I like the membership. I like the subscription recurring revenue. Very, very smart. It's it it lowers risk. I mean, I think that anytime you can do this, I mean, I wish, <laughs> you know, as an entrepreneur, you always look in retrospect and say, well, if, if things only were different, I mean, I, if we had done this three, four years ago, we'd be profitable now and, uh, and able to sort of expand the business. I mean, for us, profitability really means how do you then reinvest in expanding the impact that we can have around the world. And, and right now, you know, we have sizable resources. We're fortunate to have just raised a, a large investment round led by, by Reid Hoffman, the, you know, co-founder of LinkedIn. Um, but at the same time, you know, before, until you're, sustainable until you're covering your own costs um you're just looking at a, a clicking clock uh of you know your 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 balance is going down every month uh, and that should be a forcing function for both rapid execution and serious consideration of, of how you can get yourself to sustainability um and that is something that we are now you know quite focused on mm. so I'm also curious around, you know, that pivot that you did make. How 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 did you like that must have been a very difficult call. What was going through your thought process? Like like what what like how, how did you make that decision that you had to do that? Because that's a pretty big shake up, like you said. It was. Uh, you know, we faced about a couple of years ago, you know, a big choice when you see sort of the, you know, a competitor on the horizon. Uh, that in in a way it seems odd to think of Facebook as a as a competitor to us. They aren't really in a direct sense. We're actually we partner in, in many significant ways. We you know we receive a lot of traffic from Facebook, send them a huge amount of good content. Um, but from an ads perspective, you know we're all competing for attention. And uh, when it became clear Facebook would have a really robust platform uh, for ads, and a lot of our clients started also using them. You have, you have a choice. Either you can pivot out of that business um, or you double down. You really can't go in between. You can't sort of do it part way. And so uh, we made the decision, which now in retrospect I wish we would not have done, um, not to pivot out of the business then, to really double down and say we want to build an anchor business around you know, ads with the, you know, the, the nonprofit and political uh, landscape. And so we spent a lot of resources building out a, a platform of better analytics, targeting um, and service for our our clients, trying to fight against uh, what we saw to be the competition from Facebook, and at the same time, in hedging our bets, you know, started testing. Well, what would the alternative revenue lines be if this doesn't work out? Um, and you know, we both saw, despite our best efforts, um, the revenue just just not increased significantly on our ads uh, revenue line, and these other 
user-driven kind of crowdfunding like and subscription revenue lines show real promise. And so it was the combination of those two factors that gave us the confidence both that we needed to get out of the ads business and, and, and not be in, you know, competing with Facebook or Google uh, on, on ads and that we had a real promising business empowering our own users to become not just actively engaged in the platform, but also contributing to the sustainability of the platform. Hmm. Yeah, no. And when I want, another thing I'm curious around is uh, when, when I look at um, Wikipedia, it says you have over a hundred million users. Um, do you guys, are you guys quite aggressive on growth still? Like, like how do you know? Like, cause for you guys with, with your mission, it's, it's to hit the world. So does that mean that you guys are still extremely aggressive on acquisition or, or still work like the, the monetization piece? Like, like how do you balance that scale? Because you, I know you do have investors, but you know, we, we kind of covered that piece where you know, they're not necessarily looking for a return. So, so how do you work out what, what's, yeah, what to do or, or where the focus is? Well, I should say, and one thing is I, the investors we have, you know, Reed has recently announced that he's going to donate um, uh, profits from uh, any investment from Change.org into the Change.org Foundation. We have an associated NGO or another charity. And so it is the case that we deeply believe that we're going to be able to build the kind of successful business that enables us to, through private liquidity, private secondaries, you know, dividends or stock buybacks, be able to provide liquidity to investors, which we think is important as a, as a demonstration of the potential mission-driven businesses, not just about us, about you know, how do you show that it's possible for for-profit companies to really have a deep mission and have a long-term sustainable approach to that mission. So that's important to us, but at the same time, these are investors that are, that are deeply mission-aligned. The reason that growth matters to us is, 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 is user-based you know, the active engagement of a sizable number of citizens is impact. The only reason why companies and countries, you know, members of parliament or Congress or mayors or, uh, or heads of state care about change.org is because we have, we represent about 10% of the voting public of many of the world's biggest democracies. Uh, and the larger the audience of people we mobilize, the more impact that they are able to have through the platform. And the ultimate vision that we have is if you have a critical mass of not just five or ten percent, but twenty or thirty percent of the voting public actively engaged, using their phones to sort of communicate with their their elected officials, and can on those same mobile phones before they vote, see how responsive those elected officials have been. You know, if you're an elected official, you're a candidate for office. Considering how you want to engage with your constituents, and thirty percent of them are using Change.org uh, to communicate with you, you don't really have a choice. Uh, it is no longer why well, I'm going to pay rhetorical deference to these citizens. It's like I need to actually heed what they what they demand, what they request, and at least authentically engage them because they're going to be determining my next election. Uh, and so growth really matters to us for that reason. So it is still the case that we're focused on on user growth. We're registering about a a little over the, a, a million new reg users a week right now. Wow. Um, and uh, and part of it is just it's, it's an inherently viral platform where. You know, 25,000 campaigns get started. Those people push them out to their friends. A number of those go viral because of how newsworthy they are, remarkable a personal story is, um, and that's what drives the growth. Mm. One thing I notice is you guys produce a lot of content too. Yeah, you know, what we try to do is what we think of is the seed content is the content our users are posting. So the 25,000 campaigns that get launched 
every month. And then we think, well, how do we build on top of that? One would be, how do you help your own users to make that content stronger? Um, so provide them tools and guidance increasingly in an automated way to make it great. And then we send out hundreds of millions of emails uh, a month with that content um, that is being produced by our users, but with, with sort of support that we provide as well. Um, and then we do ourselves cover, almost as if we're media ourselves, the most compelling stories on change.org. And so when there are viral campaigns, and the, the mainstream media might cover the campaigns, there might be two, three, or five, or 10 news articles about a single petition, we sometimes will then write on top of that kind of a, a narrative tying it all together to package that for either people that haven't signed the petition or that did, so you can walk them through and make them feel a part of the, the ongoing narrative of that campaign. Mm, yeah, I love that. It's really, really smart. I, I love what you're up to, man. It's really, really impressive. Congratulations on all of your success. And um, we have to work towards wrapping up, but um, what's next for change.org and what are your biggest struggles right now? What I'm most excited about, about what's next, is two things. One is, you know, we see this quite dramatic rise in civic engagement and participation uh, really around the world right now um, through our platform. We've seen it in particular, you know, I'm sitting in San Francisco in the U.S. Um, and what we're most excited about is how do we give people the opportunity to more deeply participate in the causes and campaigns they care about and to directly engage with their elected officials. You know, we used to have a, a very asymmetric world where you know, citizens would periodically try to communicate with uh, their elected officials and rarely hear in response. And we want to create a much, much clearer two-way dialogue uh, such that people feel like their voice is being heard and we're building that platform out. That's one. And the second thing is is really scaling this subscription membership program that we talked about uh, and, and building out recurring revenue line that is mission aligned and sustains the organization and our impact over time. Um, and then what I'm concerned about is I think that that right now, uh, we yeah we live in a precarious time. I think that the you know the the, the world that we inhabit now relative to a year ago uh, is much more uncertain about where we're going in policy and politics, and it's not again unique to the U.S. Um, and I think that uh, one of the most important things we can do as citizens is is make sure that we're engaging and having our voice heard, such that the decisions that are being made at a national or global level that impact the future of humanity are those that we also ourselves are participating in, and so. Um, it's something that I personally care about and we as a company are actively engaged in as well. Mm, love it. Awesome. Well, look, um, we'll, we'll wrap there, Ben, because I know you've got to get going. But our last question is, uh, where's the best place people can find out more about your work? Uh, so the easiest would be going just to change.org. And I'm just at brattray, at B-R-A-T-T-R-A-Y on Twitter. I'm not as active a producer of content as I am a consumer of content. Um, but I will respond as much as possible there. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, Ben. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. 
These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.